looked at last week. Jesus defied society's divides. Breaking through societal and religious divides to bring the outcast, the outsider, and the ostracized into relationship with himself. This week, in this text, Matthew's going to show us in no uncertain terms Jesus' divinity. Jesus as Lord. The Lord who calms the chaos, the Lord who conquers the powers of chaos, and the Lord who cancels the consequences of chaos. Because he's Jesus. He's the Lord who removes any barriers to us being in relationship with him. You see, Jesus' healings in Matthew 8 and 9 paved the way for those who are healed to follow him as disciples. Now, why is this? Because ultimate healing, that is healing that goes beyond the temporal, physical healing, healing that restores our soul, our very being, ultimate healing that takes us through death into life, a life in and with Jesus, where we will witness the restoration of the whole cosmos, the whole universe, that healing is only possible in relationship with Jesus. So, would you stand with me for the reading of the word? Matthew 8, 18 to chapters 9, 9. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, His disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, what business do you have with, with each other? Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished. In the waters. The 
herdsmen ran away, and they went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up. And followed him. Living God, thank you for inspiring your servant Matthew to accurately remember and record the events of this text before us, that even today we may be blessed by them. As you give yourself to us, as you reveal yourself afresh to us, would you now overcome any and all barriers to hearing your call and becoming obedient to you? to be faithful followers, disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Please be seated. Did you catch it? Did you hear the word repeated at the beginning and at the end of this passage? If you wouldn't mind, indulge me for a moment. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and see if you both agree what that word might be. Little pop quiz, right? (laughs) I see some smiles there, here and there. Okay. What is that word? Anyone know? Say it with me, okay? Count of three. One, two, three. Follow. Very good. Very good. Follow. Yeah. The word is follow. If you have your Bibles here with you today, and I really hope that you do in one form or another, you'll see follow. Follow. Grouped at the beginning and at the end of our passage. And you can trace it with me. Look, we got follow in verse 18. Okay? We got follow in verse 21. Follow in verse 23. And then if you go over to chapter 9, verse 9, you'll see follow used twice, right? Once as a command and once as a statement of fact. This bracket of follows, or as I like to call it, a follow sandwich, is more formally called an inclusio. 
Now, being observant of these conclusios in Scripture is useful because they function like signposts which help us better engage the text. In this case, I think this follow sandwich, this follow inclusio, is calling our attention to the matter of discipleship by showing us the God-man, the God-enfleshed Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because, if you remember, Matthew knows when you see and know who Jesus is, you're going to want to follow. You see, following is one of the main actions, the main verb for you grammar folk, that describe a disciple. You become like the master as you follow him over time. See, the basis for learning to be like someone is to be with them, to be in relationship with, to, and in Jesus' case, in him and he in us. Now, I think many of you here who are from Eastern cultures really understand this intuitively because that's how education functioned, at least traditionally. We actually have a parallel concept here in the West. Our trades certification system, right? Functions much in the same way. Apprentice, journeyman, master. You apply, start off as an apprentice, washing dishes at, uh, at the camp. Right? You work under guidance, often menial tasks, until the master says, ah, you're ready to move to the next level. Then, as a journeyman, you're given more responsibility and continue under the master's watchful eye until he declares you are ready to strike out on your own as a master yourself. Ah, of course, like any analogy, this example falls a little short, right? Because Jesus is not training you to be the master. No, no, no. He's training you to depend on him more and more. So, this, this, this scribe, also known as the teacher of the law, depending on your Bible translation, he comes to Jesus probably just as the disciples are preparing the boats to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, just as Jesus had instructed them. Now, you may remember from last week that the last time scribe was mentioned in Matthew, it's not very flattering. Verse 28 in chapter 7. The crowds are amazed by Jesus' teaching because why? He teaches them as one with authority, not as the teaching of the scribes. So the scribe, he approaches Jesus with his, with his application form. As disciples in that day would seek permission to follow masters according to to their custom. And he makes Jesus, he makes Jesus an offer he can't refuse. He says, teacher, by the way, you'll notice that though this title is accurate, Jesus is a teacher, right? And he even refers to himself as a teacher. It's not adequate. In Matthew, if you trace it, teacher is the preferred title for those who don't fully believe or trust in Jesus. So this scribe, he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll say it again. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I've tried to intentionally read it with the emphasis that's more apparent in the Greek. You see, who's the center of attention? The scribe. 
He's the subject of the statement. Theologian Dale Bruner, in his commentary, says it, puts it this way. The scribes' remarks have the overtone of, Jesus, this is your lucky day. Finally, you have someone educated to follow you. Not these stinky, uneducated fishermen. Jesus' reply is shocking. He puts a twist on the wherever you go announcement of the scribe. Foxes and birds have shelters, but the Son of Man, I've got no where to lay my head. Not even basic shelter, something foxes and birds have. Still want to follow? Now, before we treat the scribe too harshly, we have to recognize that this scribe sees something that Jesus has, something that he does not have. He recognizes Jesus as someone important with whom he would like to be associated. This, in contrast to most scribes, described throughout Matthew, who despise Jesus and often seek to trap him in their own schemes. So, here is a man, a wannabe disciple, who comes to Jesus over-eager, not having considered being a part of Jesus' kingdom offers no guarantee of creaturely comforts. As we'll soon see, there really is nothing comfortable about being soaked, having waves washing, sweeping over your boat, and fearing that you may drown at any moment. Indeed, Jesus himself warns his disciples after these chapters on healing, chapters 10, that they would be subject to hardship, rejection, even persecution. But blessed are they. What do you mean, blessed? Don't, don't you mean cursed? No. You might remember the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they, disciples who follow Jesus, who are what? Poor in spirit, who have been persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. For the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, we don't come to Jesus on our own terms. With our own offer of discipleship to him. That's not how it works in Jesus' kingdom. No, no, no. Jesus announces his kingdom is at hand and calls you and I to be his followers. Jesus' followers, therefore, live like Jesus lived. Poor in spirit. Yeah. Mourn. Yeah. Gentle. Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are merciful and are peacemakers. Yes. And even persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Yes. Jesus' call demands your all. Guess what? He gives his all to you, too. Now, I hope that this scribe did become a genuine disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. And Matthew seems to leave the door just a little open. Because right in the following verse, Matthew tells us another disciple. As if this scribe might have become a follower. I certainly hope so. So another disciple. Pay attention to the difference now. He says to Jesus, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. This man is already a disciple, right? 
Matthew tells us this in his narration, and the man tells us this in his title for Jesus, which is Lord. What is Jesus' response? Notice he responds in the exact same pattern. Follow me, permit me first. No, 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 no. Follow me, that's first. It's as, if, it's as if Jesus is saying, you've got who I am absolutely right. And as your request shows, you know well who is Lord. What you've gotten wrong is your first responsibility. Your first responsibility is to follow me. That trumps everything else. Your relationship to Jesus, and more importantly, Jesus' relationship to you, trumps everything else. Now, Jesus doesn't do this because he wants to make things difficult. No. It's because he loves us. He loves you and me so much that he knows if anything else takes his place, it won't be long until it consumes us. Even good things like family obligations. Let the dead bury their own dead. But follow me, and Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, will take you through death and into life. Now, I wonder how often in our lives we put other things first. Other things before following Jesus. Good things, even. But still, things that have now in turn consumed us, or at least threatened to consume us. Would you turn them over to Jesus now to follow him first? Or would you at least be willing to ask Jesus to help you to be willing to turn them over to him? You know what? He will, you know. He will. Because he loves you and wants nothing to get in the way. So, with the, built, uh, with the boats all now prepared, Jesus gets in, and his disciples follow him. And a great quake, literally a mega seismos in Greek. Seismos, from which we get the English word seismic, as in seismic event or earthquake. A mega seismos, bam, hits the Sea of Galilee. Now, you may know that Jewish people were not really home on the sea, they didn't make very good sailors. Think back to the Old Testament. Anytime there's a sea, there's either images of beasts coming out of it, or it requires some great divine activity to overcome it. Think Jonah and the Red Sea. In fact, if you fast forward to the last book of the Bible, in the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 21, you'll notice John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth has no sea. River? Yes. In chapter 22. But sea? No. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. Regardless of whether Jews were natural sailors or not, these disciples were fishermen, right? They should have been accustomed to the waters on the Sea of Galilee. But Matthew tells us there's something unusual happening here. A mega seismos. A mega quake. 
You know, Matthew only uses seismos two other times to describe events that happened. Once at the cross, at the moment of Jesus' death, when the tombs broke open and the dead were brought back to life. And once on the first ever Easter morning, when the stone of Jesus' tomb was rolled away. I think, I think, Matthew uses these as markers of significant God moments. In this case, creator speaking to creation. And behold, there arose a great quake on the sea. This would have been the exact image the ancients would have had in mind when they thought of the universe prior to creation. A stormy sea, tossing, turning, writhing, formless and void, engulfed in darkness. Hmm. Does that remind you of something? Perhaps Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And here, the Spirit of God, now dwelling in and empowering the person of Jesus of Nazareth, once again moves over the face of the chaotic waters, (laughs) asleep. Imagine that. But what about the Son of Man having no place to lay his head. No home. Yet, here Jesus is, home everywhere, as only the creator amidst his creation can be, even in the midst of chaos. With the swirling winds and waves breaking over the side of the boat, all the skills that the disciples had learned as hard-working fishermen didn't help. No matter what they tried, it didn't work. Finally, panic seizing a hold of them, they cry out three short words. Lord, save, dying. And Jesus of Nazareth, the creator of the universe, peers out from behind peaceful sleeping eyes and says to them, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? I love the Greek here, which just mashes together little and faith. So that's one word. So Jesus calls them little faiths. And Jesus gets up to rebuke the winds and the sea. Rebuke. The same word that the gospel writers use to describe Jesus' encounters with the agents of chaos, the powers of darkness, when he casts them out. He rebukes this winds in the sea, and it becomes mega calm. He just speaks, and creation obeys. And God said to the formless void, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus just speaks. I don't even think he raised his voice. For there was no battle, no struggle, no roaring sound of winds and seas to overcome with a shouting voice. No, he just speaks and it becomes mega calm. His men, his disciples, they're amazed and rightfully so. And they ask, what kind of man is this? Who is Jesus, they know 
See, they know. They know they've been sailing this whole time with the Lord of creation, the one who calms the chaos. Jesus' question still stands before us today. Why are you afraid? I wonder if he does not answer the question himself. Because you are little faiths. And because we are little faiths, we only see the out-of-control storms all around us. And so we fear, we worry, we become paralyzed, or become hyperactive. All because we don't trust that Jesus is actually sovereign, in control of all the chaos around us and in us. I think he sometimes lets us experience mega seismos so that we will exhaust our own resources and turn to him. Now, I know but a little of storms, of life-shaking events or chaos. But I also know a little of what some of you are facing. But you know what? Jesus knows it all because you're not alone. Jesus is with you. He's always with you. And so is the entire community of his disciples. Would you, even now, look to him and trust that he is sovereign? Sometimes this means that he will have something for you to do. But I think most of the time, we're just to rest in him. Confident that he is in control, and not the chaos all around us. Sailing on the mega calm waters now, they arrive in the country of the Gadarenes. And two demon-possessed men come out from the tombs from which they were living to meet Jesus. Now, I know it is easy to be sidetracked with many questions about maybe these men, Demons, where they come from, how this happened, all of that. But you'll notice, Matthew himself doesn't really tell us very much about the matter, right? <laughs> no, Matthew's concern is that we recognize the one basic truth. Jesus is Lord, and he conquers the powers of chaos, and he does it with a word. These demon-possessed men, Living among the tombs, the place of the dead, which to give you an idea as to the objective of evil, right? To kill and to destroy. They come out to confront a new group of trespassers, another hapless bunch for them to harass and assault. Matthew, in fact, tells us that no one could pass by that way because they were so violent. You know, I don't think the demons knew that they were going to run into Jesus. Because when they do, they cry out. Actually, I think the better translation might be, they shrieked. <laughs> Too late. Can't run away now. This is the Son of God before them. They know Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They know him. They also know their own end. They know that they are undone. Have you come to torment us before the time, they ask? 
We are tormented, oppressed by Jesus' holiness, by the weight of Jesus' love and care, goodness and compassion for these two men trapped by the forces of evil. They cannot bear to be in his holy presence. And they know the gospel. (laughs) They know the gospel. They know that Jesus came to set the captives free and that in Jesus' kingdom, there is no room for them. Blessed be the name of Jesus. And so they beg him to allow them to get out of his presence, to go into that herd of pigs nearby. And Jesus speaks one word. Go. And even the powers of darkness, the forces of evil, must obey. And as these demon-controlled pigs rush into the sea to their deaths, the purpose and intent of the demons again becomes abundantly clear. The utter destruction of their hosts. Now the story ends with a sad twist. Instead of celebration, the whole city's inhabitants, once tormented and powerless before two men, who themselves were tormented and powerless under the control of demons. They come out to meet Jesus. The Lord who had conquered the forces of chaos, who had authority over the demons. They come out to meet Jesus, and they beg him to leave. Ironic, isn't it? How the most powerless captives tell the one with ultimate authority what to do. Sad, isn't it? How humankind are the only ones with the audacity not to obey Jesus' words. Instead of becoming Jesus' followers, they ask him to leave. I think Matthew is showing us that at the heart of following is the matter of obedience. The very center of this story and this trio of healings are Jesus' words, go. It's as if Matthew is saying, look, creation obeys. Even the forces of evil must obey. But you and I, we have a choice. We have a decision today and every day, every moment of every day. Will you be obedient to Jesus' call and follow him? Now, you know, I think there was hope for the city's inhabitants. Between the time Jesus left this region and the next time he goes back, something's changed. You see, next time he goes back to the region, there are 4,000 people who meet him and follow him around. And I think the difference started with one of the men who was healed by Jesus that day. One man who was cleansed of evil spirits and became Jesus' disciples. He was, according to the parallel story in Mark, likely the first Gentile missionary ever commissioned. And he goes and he tells the whole region so that next time Jesus comes, the city's inhabitants, they welcome Jesus with open arms. But for now, having become persona non grata, Unwelcome in that region, they all sail back to Capernaum, his own city. And there, some people bring to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. 
and seeing their faith, Jesus responds. Have you noticed that in both last week and this week's set of three miracles, there is always someone, or someones in this case, who come to Jesus on behalf of another? (laughs) Now this is a really important observation because it tells us that Jesus honors intercessory prayer. (laughs) Indeed, isn't the hope of all intercessory prayer that another may be helped? And isn't the only basis for Jesus' healing his own love and compassion for the lost and hurting? This is what the faith of the intercessor remembers and calls upon. And so seeing their faith, the intercessors, true friends who bring the paralytic, Jesus turns to the paralytic lying on the stretcher before him and says, well, what about you? Where's your faith? No, no, that's not what he says. He never even inquires as to what the paralytic thinks. No, instead, Jesus sees the deepest need, the heart of the matter. And he forgives this paralytic's sins. Mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. Sin, as Augustine defined it, the self turned in on itself. And where this happens, there is disorder. Sin wreaks chaos. Chaos. Chaos in our relationship with God. Chaos in our relationship with others. Chaos in relationship with the world. And even chaos in our relationship to ourselves. Yeah, even ourselves. And sometimes, sometimes, sin and the chaos it wreaks manifests physically. In this case... And I do mean this specific case. I do think that the the paralysis was a consequence of sin. Does this mean that all sickness is a result of sin? No. I'll say it again. Not all sickness is a result of sin. In this case, it was. And so Jesus forgives him. Meeting this man's deepest needs. Now, the scribes, of course, they know what forgiveness of sins is all about. It means restoration of relationship. Right relationship between God and humankind, humanity's greatest need. They also know that only one person, one person has the authority to forgive sins. God and God alone. No mere human had the authority to forgive sins. For to claim that authority, God's own authority would be blasphemy, the penalty of which was death by stoning. But Jesus is not merely human. No, Matthew has shown us otherwise, hasn't he? Jesus is Lord who calms the chaos. Jesus is Lord who conquers the agents of chaos. And now Matthew is going to show us that Jesus is Lord who cancels the consequences of And so in a rather ironic twist, over and against the now forgiven paralytic, the scribes are now guilty of thinking evil in their hearts, the sin of refusing to recognize Jesus as the one who does have the authority to forgive sins. 
refusing to accept that Jesus is none other than God incarnate, who yearns to restore broken humanity and breaks through all barriers, including that of our sin, to bring us into relationship with himself. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus asks a rhetorical question about whether forgiving sins or healing is easier. I think by this he means, which is the lesser claim? I think often, like the scribes, we think that forgiveness of sins is easier to claim, right? Nothing external to prove whether it happened or not. So what does Jesus do? He does the more difficult, at least the more visibly difficult in that moment. The physical healing about to happen points to the fact, yes, the fact that he does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. That Jesus is the Lord who cancels the consequences of chaos. Sin, its dreadful hold over each and every one of our lives and the disordered chaos it brings, the havoc it wreaks in and on our lives. You see, truth be told, to forgive sins is infinitely more difficult than this physical healing. It took an infinite God to coming down to become incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and taking the entire world's sins to that wooden cross at Calvary where he suffered and died, the penalty for our sins, the just punished for the unjust. That's what it took. But thanks be to God, it didn't end there, did it? No, by taking the penalty for our sins, he defeated death, passed through it into life. At the same life, he promises to bring his disciples, his followers into. And so he declares, your sins are forgiven. Get up. Pick up your bed and go home. Now, I don't know what sins you are wrestling with today. Sins that maybe have been wreaking chaos in your life. Maybe you feel like this man. You feel paralyzed, crushed from every side by sin's oppressive weight. Unable to move. Unable to be free. Jesus can set you free. Jesus wants you to be free. Would you turn to him even now? And I think I speak for the whole community of Jesus' followers here. When I say we would love to come alongside you to pray with and for you and to pronounce Jesus' forgiveness over you as you confess to him whatever you are facing. We'll be here, ready, willing to bring you before Jesus if you want to come and pray. And so, Matthew caps off this section with a little personal testimony about following Jesus. The other slice of the follow sandwich. He tells Jesus, he tells us that Jesus met him one day. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Jesus says the same thing to you and to me. Today, every day, follow me. What are you going to do 
Matthew's shown you. He's shown you who Jesus is. Will you fall? Let's pray. Maybe you're here today, and this is the first time you've heard Jesus calling you. You're not even sure what following looks like. But something you've heard today tugged at your heart. That's Jesus calling. Maybe you're in the midst of chaos, or you're feeling paralyzed from the effects of sin's chaos. Or maybe you even feel like you're battling the forces of chaos in your life. Would you be willing to be just a little faith and follow Jesus just as you are? Would you ask him to do in your life what only he can and wants to do? He'll honor that. He'll free you. He'll grow your faith. And when you sometimes feel like you can't follow, he'll pour out his grace on you so you can. He'll do it because he loves you and wants nothing to get in the way of having a relationship with him. Maybe you're here today, already a disciple of Jesus, but you're feeling oppressed by the weight of firsts that have taken Jesus' place, or you feel like you're about to drown as you strive to battle the storm around you, or maybe you're engaged in some spiritual battle and you feel like you're about to lose. Or maybe there's some sin in your life that you're so tired of, but it seems to have a complete hold of you. Would you turn to Jesus once again and ask him to be Lord in your life once again? You know, he's never left your side, never left you to face anything alone. He yearns for you to walk in the fullness of life that only he can give. Encouraged by the community of grace, the community of Jesus' followers. These things I do pray in the strong name of Jesus of Nazareth. Lord over chaos. And all Jesus' disciples said, Amen.